Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. While typically I talk about specific topics related to Catholicism, every month I want to highlight a Catholic who is living out their faith in theology. G.K. Chesterton said, let your faith be less of a theory and more of a love affair. And so today I am excited to share this interview with Amy Thomas, a.k.a. The Catholic Pilgrim. I discovered Amy after reading some of her thoughtful Instagram posts on the Catholic perspective. Amy was gracious enough to sit down with me to share her pilgrimage from an evangelical Christian home to experiencing devastating trauma, to falling in love with a Catholic, to eventually becoming Catholic herself. Amy has specialized in sexual abuse and trauma, and so we even took some time to talk about the child abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. Here's my interview with Mrs. Amy Thomas, the Catholic Pilgrim. Amy, thank you so much for taking time to meet with me today and to talk with the Why Catholic audience. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I love doing interviews and chit-chatting with other Catholics, so I'm always happy to do them. Well, fantastic. Well, as we get started, can you tell people where to find you on, online, social media, etc.? Yes. So I am on Facebook, uh, Catholic Pilgrim. You can just look that up. And on Instagram, Catholic Pilgrim, uh, same handle. And my website is www.catholicpilgrim.net. And I also have a podcast um, called Journeying with the Saints. Okay, fantastic. And I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can find them for sure. So thank you. Tell me a little bit about your handle, Catholic Pilgrim. Why did you choose that? <laughs> well, when I first became Catholic, I was way back in 2009. Um, you know, I was full of, you know, all this new convert vigor, and I wanted to start writing about all the things I was learning. And so I was going to start a blog and I I call myself passionate purpose and I was kind of all over the place. Like sometimes I would do reviews of restaurants and just write about things that had absolutely nothing to do with the Catholic faith. And uh, the name was kind of getting um, misinterpreted as (laughs) um, something other than it was. Um, (laughs) And so anyway, it just wasn't going anywhere. Like I was not getting off the ground. I had like five followers and it was my family and none of them are Catholic. And uh, so it just wasn't working. And then in 2012, my husband deployed and I went home to Kansas to live with my family. And I lived with my dad. And one day I came home and he's like, Amy, there's this movie you got to watch. And he's like, it's, it's very Catholic and you're going to love it. And I kind of looked at my dad, like, okay, you're sharing this with me, but we watched it. It was called the way, and Mm. it's not overtly Catholic, um, but it's all about the pilgrimage that you take to the Basilica of St. James in Compostela. And I was completely and utterly hooked. And I was like introduced to this idea of the pilgrim. Yeah. I started thinking about my life and I was like, you know, the military spouse, we travel all over the place, but our, our lives are just a pilgrimage to heaven. And I was like, that is it. That is it. I'm going to call myself the Catholic pilgrim. And I just want to bring the Catholic faith to other pilgrims and share that with them. And once I changed my name, it all took off. Like I had purpose and I had, I had my why, like huh. what I'm doing now. And so um, things really took off from there. Very cool. I've, I've seen that movie as well with uh, Emilio Estevez oh. and yeah, yeah. Uh, a really, a really powerful movie actually before my conversion as well. So one of those really? <laughs> moments where I, I look back and I think like, ah, maybe that, that moment that I didn't, you know, watching this movie that I'm not thinking much about there, you know, there it is. It's, it's impacting yeah. me, you know. Uh, now, have you gone on the Camino de Santiago? I have not. Okay. Um, that is when my husband retires from the military that is what I want to do before we transition into civilian life. So yeah. um, that is, that is definitely on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. It definitely on my bucket list. We were in Northern Spain recently oh. and, uh, and like we're at different spots on the Camino, but not mm. purposefully walking towards Santiago. So yeah. yeah. Well, very awesome. Well, um, you know, you hinted a little bit at you became Catholic in 2009. Tell me a little bit about before that your Protestant upbringing. Yes. So um, I was raised in the Disciples of Christ Church uh, for my whole 
uh, growing up years. And, and, you know, I was, I would call myself that um, until I converted and um, in my thirties. And, um, you know, my mom was faithful. Gosh, she got us, got me and my brother and sister up every Sunday, went to church, Sunday school. Um, even when we were whining about it, you know, she'd rip the covers off of our heads and we were still going to church. Um, and it was a good experience. I mean, it was, uh, I had one bad youth leader, but other than that, I loved um, my pastor. He was such a good and holy man. And, um, you know, I, I can't really say anything bad about it. Um, it just, it was good. And then when I became a teenager, I started to drift away and <clears throat> I got into some really bad relationships with, uh, two guys in particular, and, um, they were extremely abusive. And, um, the second one, uh, in particular caused me to fall away from my faith. I was very angry with God. And so it wasn't that I stopped believing in God. It was that I just was like, you turned your back on me. I'm going to turn my back on you. Um, and so I just completely abandoned you know, doing anything that would, you know, show that I was a Christian, I would call myself that. And, um, you know, I, I would defend the faith, but I wasn't living it out in any fashion whatsoever. Um, I wasn't going to church, I didn't read my Bible, I did do kind of a Bible study with my roommates in college, but it was, it was a little half-hearted. Um, I was living a very secular life. And, uh, I was miserable. What about your, your, your parents' reaction during this time? It seems like your parents were a big influence in your, your Christian upbringing. And so here, did they know about you kind of walking away from the faith? What was the reaction? Well, it was right when I was at the cusp of 17 and 18. And so, um, when I, when I really fully like, I'm not going to church anymore, I was 18. And so, um, I could tell that my mother was heartbroken, um, but I don't think she knew how to deal with it because um, I think she saw the turmoil in my life, but I never shared with my parents what happened mm -hmm. at, at that time. Um, so they didn't understand where the turmoil was coming from. And so, uh, you know, I, I was a good student. I was an athlete. Um, you know, I'd never been a real problem for my parents. So, I, I think that my mom, especially because she was very keyed in on it, I just don't think she knew what to do with me. <laughs> and I was 18. So what was she going to do? Um, so I know she did a lot of a lot of praying. <laughs> I know she did. Um, I was also engaged to another guy um, who ob it obviously did not work out. And I know she was praying a lot on that because he had no faith life and um, he wasn't a bad guy, but we just were, as she would say, unequally yoked. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is why you're off at college and so forth, that that you've kind of taken this different path. And and I, I guess one of my questions would be in your anger towards God, was it was it this real active resentment or was it more of like passive in this uh, you know what? I just this is not, I'm just gonna step take a step back. Or was it like everything, every time you um, studied the Bible, was it like this active like resentment and um, maybe building up walls to uh, any receptiveness to God? It was, you know, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like I hated God or anything like that. It was more of a, uh, in a way, like trying to punish him, mm. I guess, by removing myself from a relationship with him um, in an effort to make him feel like I felt at that moment. It's, you know, it's kind of a bizarre thing. I, I can't punish God, but that was my, my 18 year old mindset. Um, I was just so deeply wounded and I couldn't understand why he would let something horrific happen to somebody who wasn't bad. Because that was just not a concept that I ever grew up understanding, you know, I kind of thought that calling myself a Christian was just like a good cover for, you know, nothing bad's ever going to happen. Your life will be good. And that was my, you know, naive teenage mind. 
and not ever really hearing about suffering mm-hmm. and what we do with suffering. Um, and so I, I just could not under, I'm like, I could not understand how God could allow this to happen. And so um, I would read the Bible, like with that Bible study, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, deep hatred. It was just like, well, you let, you turned your back on me. So I'm just going to turn my back on you and see how you like that. God, it was pitiful, but that was my mindset. <laughs> so now, um, here you are Catholic. So, and not just Catholic, but uh, someone who defends the faith. So tell me a little bit about that process of, of coming into the Catholic church and what did that look like for you? Yeah. So, um, my junior year in college, um, I, so I, the goal was to be in the FBI. Um, and I had gone to a career fair at, uh, Kansas state university. That's where I went. And I talked to the FBI there and they, I was like, Hey, how do you get into the FBI? And they're like, well, be a lawyer or join the military. And I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm <laughs> the military. Um, I had never given it a thought. My parents thought that was just bizarro. And um, so I joined Air Force RTC. And on my first day, I walked in and I saw Dustin, my husband, and I was just like, that's that's him. That's who I have to marry. And I, we barely even had talked. Um, but yet I was engaged to another guy. Long story short, I ended that engagement and uh, fell in love with a cradle Catholic <laughs> who was living a very lukewarm, you know, faith life. Neither one of us were involved at all. He literally lived right across the street from the Catholic church on campus and barely ever went. And so um, we decided to move in together, which I do not condone. And lo and behold, I wound up pregnant my senior year. And uh, we knew we were going to be married and um, that was never a question. And so before we got married, we had our our oldest daughter, uh, who's 21 now. And everything kind of changed when she was born. (laughs) So as it, as it always does. Yeah. <laughs> so now, you know, here we were this blended um, Protestant slash Catholic couple, um, whereas before that didn't matter. But now when it came to how we were going to raise her, it mattered a lot. And so that was the number one thing that we fought about in our early years of marriage was, are we going to be Protestant? Are we going to be Catholic? Mm-hmm. And I was very anti-Catholic, very anti-Catholic. And so I like to say I fought, my husband argued, because I would just lash out all of these things that I had heard about the Catholic church, never having researched it for myself. And he would, he's an engineer. So uh, he's a very logical, analytical thinker. And he would just dismantle all my arguments, which humbled me. <laughs> um. And we kind of came to a compromise. We were like, one weekend we'll go to the Protestant church. And then the next weekend we'll go to a Catholic mass. And then we'll back and forth and back and forth. And uh, that got so old. And we'd always go to a Protestant church and they would always talk about Catholicism, obviously in a bad light. And I would leave there going, yeah. And he would, he would leave like very upset. And we'd get in a fight after church. <laughs> And, you know, it just, over time, his dismantling of all the arguments um, just kind of left me at a loss. And so I finally conceded to him. I was like, you know what? If it's so important to you to be Catholic, fine. We'll go to a Catholic church. I'll get a good homily, hopefully. Uh, maybe some good music. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. And, um, you know, you can do this communion thing that's so important to you and uh and we'll just exist in this way and so it was there that the pull of the eucharist started reeling me in because i was very upset that i could not go up and receive communion because i grew up completely symbolic all were welcome at the table and so i could not understand how i a baptized christian could not go up and receive and the the idea of it being Christ was like, 
Like, I, I don't know. It's like he's talking another language. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so one Sunday, you know, I was really being, I, I can tend to be a little snarky and um, spiteful sometimes. And I was like, I'm going up there. I'm going up to receive this. You can't tell me I, I can't. The Catholic Church can't tell me I can't. And my husband, you know, we were in church and my husband's like, Amy, you're not supposed to do this. And I'm like, whatever, stop me. And so I went up and I, I took the Eucharist and I immediately felt horrible. It was horrible. Um, and I could not understand why I felt horrible if it was just a symbol. Hmm. And so that was like, and I was like, I, in my mind, I was like, I, I'm never doing that again. Um, I don't know why I feel horrible, but I don't want to feel like that anymore. And so that led me on a journey to reading John six. And, um, and then I just, it's like the wall fell down. And so um, it was really the call of the Eucharist and where we got the Bible that were like the main punches home. (laughs) And then I just, I realized I was like, I have to become Catholic. I have to do this. Um, And so 2009, eight years after we were married. <laughs> How did that conversation go? Like, um, you know, you, you you took the Eucharist. Did you talk to your your husband about the way that you felt afterwards? No, not until a long time afterwards. Mm. Uh, I was unsure of what it meant, and I didn't quite know how to relay that in words. I I just I it was a bizarre feeling to me because um, I. Like I'd literally grown up in a church where me and my mom would eat the leftover, you know, little wafer things and drink the grape juice if there was leftover after communion. And so why it felt bad was just, it was baffling to me. I couldn't figure it out. And so Mm -hmm. I I just had to process that a little bit. And then how did that conversation go with when you said, I think I'm ready to be Catholic. I think I want to become Catholic. (laughs) Well, you know, it's crazy. I, I don't remember actually telling Dustin that I, it was time, but once I was sure it was like, I got to do this right now, right now. And what's interesting is we were just getting ready to move uh, to California. We were in Florida and we were getting ready to move to California. And I was like, I want to get confirmed at this church. I want to, because I knew the priests and everything. And my daughter had her first communion there and everything. And um, I was like, I, I can't wait. I cannot wait to go to California, find a church, set that all up. And so I went in and I talked to the priest and I explained that I've been going to a Catholic mass for years now. And, and, uh, you know, I've been doing all this research and everything. And I was like, is there any way that I could be confirmed? <laughs> and they made an exception for me. The bishop made an exception. I had to do like a week long morning to night class with one-on-one with the priest. Oh wow! So he, made, he made sure I knew all the fundamental doctrines and understood those things and everything. And then at the end of that week, I had to give my first confession. And then that Sunday I was confirmed wow. in my own private ceremony. Um, and it was very fast. And, you know, I don't recommend that to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want everybody calling their bishop and be like, hey, this lady got a really speedy RCIA. I think there's a lot to be had with going through the process with other converts. Um, but yeah, it was just very quick. <laughs> well, I remember my I remember our priest telling us about when he was talking about um the anointing of the sick, and he said, you know, you, you need to be Catholic in order to go through the sacrament. Um and and so, you know, they have like an emergency procedure. If they're not Catholic, they can yeah. baptize, confer, confirmation, the Eucharist and the anointing of the sick. And I was like, oh, so the, the, the speedy way, the <laughs> like, I'm seriously sick or get into an accident. And then yeah, it's funny. Oh, well, man. and my husband, because you have, you know, you have a sponsor when you're confirmed. Mm-hmm. So my husband was my sponsor. So he was sitting in all these classes with me, with the priest. And it was very intense for um, you know, a, a good solid week. That's pretty amazing that the priest took that time mo- morning to evening and, and just spent it with you teaching. It, you. That's, 
that's so touching. It's endearing. It really was. I mean, he wasn't the the head priest. Um, but I look back on it now and I'm like, man, that was that was such a blessing for me because mm-hmm. we we were moving and it would have taken a lot of time and I would have been caught on the end of our I it just it was the timing was all off. And so it was just like it worked out really well. Yeah. How did it feel like your daughter's Catholic? Uh, you know, your, your husband's Catholic. What did that feel like to you? Did that feel like you were kind of on the outside looking in? Did you feel weird about it? Did you go up and you cross your chest and you're like, I'm just doing this kind of walk of shame kind of thing. Like, (laughs) yeah, well, and by that time, um, our second daughter had been born. And so she had been baptized and, you know, my oldest, I did not have, I, I refused to have her baptized when she was a baby. So she didn't get baptized until she was five. Oh, okay. um, and she was baptized and she had done her first communion. And so I was like the left out person. And a lot of people assumed that I converted for that reason, because I was the one on the outside. Um, it did feel kind of, um, I did feel like an outsider and I wanted to be a part of it very badly. Once I had decided that, yes, the Eucharist is Christ, I need to be in the church that he established. Um, but that was not the driving reason for why I became Catholic, which a lot of people assume. <laughs> um, and and I, you mentioned the Eucharist being a big hurdle for you. What were, were some other theological hurdles? That oh, you had Mary. Over? Mary. Um, Usual, right? Mary. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, you know, just the... the um, the idea of the Pope uh, understanding his role. And, you know, I'd grown up, he, you know, I thought Catholics thought he was Jesus and, you know, things like that. Um, and that was part of the humbling experiences. I realized I had just believed all these mistruths that I had been told about Catholicism through osmosis. Like I just sucked it in because that's what people were telling me. I never, I never actually went and looked it up myself or asked a Catholic, Hey, what do you think about Mary? What, what is Mary's role in your life? (laughs) Um, I never had asked that. And so, you know, once I started actually reading about it and seeing what Catholics actually teach, I was like, wow, wow, this is, this is truly amazing. Hmm. Um, And then I'm sure as you know, once you do become Catholic, you're like treasure chest. <laughs> <laughs> it just it never ends. I know you're like pulling all these things out. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I can go over here, and I can go over here, and and um, but learning to involve Mary in my spiritual life took a long time. Um, it just was so foreign to me. So and the yeah. saints, you know, involving the saints was. Um, something that was just, it wasn't that I didn't understand it or get the doctrine behind those things. It was just that it felt, it just didn't feel normal to me. Mm -hmm. I never really heard it. What would you say to someone who maybe is open to, you know, there's obviously there's people that are not open to understand it all, but someone that is, and it's like, I kind of want to understand where do I begin? Like with the Eucharist, like what, what, what would you suggest to them? My first suggestion would be to take John six and just really meditate upon it Hmm. Um, to see that people were walking away from what Christ was saying, because it was so, uh, you know, just almost foul to their minds. Like, what is this man saying? Um, And then, you know what he says at the last supper, you know, he's, He's, you know, I heard the other day that Christ was holding himself in his hands, which was like, whoa, that's kind of mind blowing. And, you know, he's saying, this is my body, um, not a symbol, not like it, but it is. And so I would say start there um, and just, you know, oftentimes when I've expressed this truth to Protestants, such as my mom, and uh, our chaplain in Turkey, who's Protestant, uh, their first reaction is, no, no, I just don't believe that. 
but why don't you believe that? Why don't you believe that? And to explore that further, you know, what is it? Is do you not think God's powerful enough to do that? What would he want it to stay a purely symbolic thing, which is what we had in the Old Testament? You know, everything that Christ brings about has to be newer and better, a, a bigger fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament. So just starting there, I think, because that was what it was like, whoa, for me. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it really challenges the idea of sola scriptura. It's like, it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm reading scripture and I, you know, and you're, and you're like, well, it's pretty explicit, not only yeah. in John six and that the last supper, but first Corinthians 11, you know, when Paul says, if you, you know, those of you who don't recognize the body and blood of Jesus are profane, you know, like you're, yeah, you're bringing... even drinking judgment on yourself. Right. And so it, it tends to be, I think like this, uh, it really puts in check, well, what do I mean when I mean sola scriptura? Because obviously there's tradition that's informing how I'm reading this scripture, because otherwise, like, I don't, like, that's the only way I can reconcile the way I used to believe about the Eucharist. I don't know if it's the same with you as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely just, um, it, uh, you know, I had not grown up hearing sola scriptura, but I would have defended that, mm -hmm. not realizing that it had that title. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's coming from a, it is coming from a tradition of some kind <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it was just, I think when you sit with a, uh, and also reading the, the early church fathers and what they had to say about the Eucharist, these are the people that were close to that time. They believed in the real presence. So I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I would just, I would just start there. <laughs> Well, you mentioned your mom. Um, tell me a little bit about your family's reaction when you said, I, I'm becoming Catholic. Yeah. Oh, um, well, I've never been one not to do something if I believe in it. So it, that was never like, oh, no, what is my family going to say? Um, I'm pretty headstrong in that way. I knew that it was going to be a, a bit of, um, or I guess I knew it was going to be a source of a little bit of contention. Um, and I told my mom and she was disappointed. Um, my dad, when I told him, he was like, so you don't love Jesus anymore. And he kind of said it in a joking way. And I was like, what are you talking about? We have the Eucharist, which he didn't know what I was talking about, but he's like, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I think that was his kind of like defense mechanism was to make a joke out of it. Um, my brother will not that is like the elephant in the room with us. He will not talk to me about my Catholicism. If I bring it up in any way, you can see he's very, like his body language gets very almost defensive, um, which is sad to me because uh, it's so important to my life. And it's a, an, a topic and an area that I cannot touch with him. And I have a good relationship with him. My sister over the years has become way more open to hearing about it. Um, and so I can speak freely around her and my mom as well. Um, she's way more interested in like hearing about it and not being defensive. So it's, you know, if it was up to me and I pray about it all the time, they would all become Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it might not come through me. <laughs> well, you know, you talk uh, on your website a lot about the importance of apologetics and defending your faith and being able to speak intelligently about what you believe. Um, what advice do you have for Catholics today, especially um, maybe those who really, you know, they, they had a catechism class a long time ago, but they don't really know what they believe and know why they believe what they believe. What would you, how would you... Um, what would you talk to them about? What, what would you say? Well, not long after I started my blog, because um, I was new, newly Catholic, one of my high, uh, college roommates um, who had been a Christian became an atheist. And um, one particular day, she was just throwing out all kinds of mud, especially on the Catholic church, Christianity in general, but especially on the Catholic church. And um I was not equipped to answer her, her arguments. I knew there was answers, but I, 
I was not equipped. And I was so frustrated by that. And I was trying to like Google real fast and then reply back to her. And they were like half answers. And I wasn't satisfied with the answer. So I know she wouldn't be satisfied with them. And finally, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to take a step back. And I was like, I obviously need to go educate myself. You know, I'm, I, I am a new Catholic and I, I do, um, you know, believe the doctrines of the church and, and everything. It's just, I'm not equipped to answer um, questions about it right now. So I just dove into reading and that's what I would say is if you're a cradle Catholic and you went to, you know, CCD a hundred years ago or whatever, there's so much richness in, in the Catholic church. And there's so many avenues to follow that, you know, just pick something that you want to study and just start looking at it. You know, do you want to be proficient in defending the Eucharist? Do you want to be proficient in defending purgatory or Mary or the saints? Just start reading. And it's so interesting. There's nothing boring. I I promise you. <laughs> Is there a particular um, resource that has been maybe one of your favorite or a couple of your favorites? Oh, man, the early times, uh, early years of my conversion, Catholic Answers um, was a wealth of knowledge to me. I learned through listening to those apologists on there how to be a gracious apologist. I don't they always really do are. They really are so gracious. <laughs> yeah. I'm always like, man, they're so much more gracious. I know. <laughs> I have not quite, I, I have gotten better over the years because I can be a hothead, but I learned through listening to them, like, you know, how to present an argument uh, calmly <laughs> um, and just not to see the other person as, you know, the enemy, but to hopefully draw them into the truth. And so, man, Catholic Answers was just huge for me. Um, and I still, to this day, I, I use them all the time for research and information. And um, they are a blessing to to our church, for sure. Absolutely. That's a good one. Well, um, you know, you you guys have been a military family now for 20 years. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned moving from moving to California. Uh, tell me about some of the places you've been and how that's helped develop your your Catholic life and your your kids' Catholic life as well. Yeah. So we our first move was to Ohio, um, which wasn't too exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Kansas originally, so Ohio was a good a good first stop. Um, then we moved to Florida, California in the middle of nowhere in the Mojave Desert. Uh, strangely, we had lots of visitors in Florida when we lived on the beach. We did not have as many in the middle of nowhere in California. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, then we moved to Virginia the first time, Las Vegas. Ooh, that's a, an interesting place to live. <laughs> And um, back to Ohio, and then we moved overseas to Turkey for one year. Um, tell me, tell me about Turkey. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was. Did you was it Istanbul or was it Ankara or? No, it was Izmir, which is ancient hmm. Smyrna, which Smyrna, is right. one of the places written to in Revelations. So I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, like when my husband told me about Turkey, I was like, "Where is that exactly?" <laughs> and. Um, I had no idea where I was going. I had no, I had never connected that modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, huge in the Bible, um, a huge stomping ground for apostles and early saints. Um, so like when we got there, it was just like biblical history, right and left. Literally everywhere you walked was some kind of Christian historical marker. <laughs> Like here in Virginia, everywhere you go, there's like a historical marker for civil war, the Revolutionary War. In Turkey, it was like that for Christianity. Yeah. Any particular place that really stood out to you around there? (laughs) Um, I would have to say probably Ephesus was huge. Um, To have been in the theater where St. Paul was you know, trying to talk to the, the rebel crowd. Um, it was just surreal. It was so surreal. And 
just to walk where he possibly was and where St. John was and Mother Mary possibly had, you know, walked was, it was awesome. I just, I still think back on it. I'm like, wow, I actually was there. It's so cool. Um, did you get a chance to go to Mary's house? That- I did. I did. Yes. What was, what was your impression there? I, like I had no expectation. I had no idea what I was going to, um, you know, go up and see. <laughs> and uh, it just, it did. It felt very holy. It felt very calm and peaceful. And I was like, I can see why the spot was picked. And I was surprised. Something that shocked me was I, I did not understand and realize that Muslims have a deep regard for Mary. And so there was a lot of Muslims up there that were, you know, um, touring around and looking at it. And, and I was surprised by that. (laughs) I was like, wow, I had no idea we have this in common. (laughs) Now, did you have any conversations with any um, Muslim locals there and, and about faith at all? Yes. Um, you know, obviously we were American military and um, the local, uh, you know, Izmirians, <laughs> they're used to having military around um, and they're used to, they're very, um, I would say, liberal in the idea of being more tolerant on the Western coast of Christianity than maybe on the Eastern side. Um, so I felt free to talk to them about, you know, going to church and, you know, how was mass today? They would, you know, ask those kinds of things. And, you know, they would say Merry Christmas and, you know, Happy Easter and things like that. Um, And there was one in particular that was extremely interested in Catholicism and even went to mass with us uh, several times. And so I was like, oh, this is so great. But, (laughs) but yeah, they were, at least in Izmir, they were very um, just open and fine with hearing about our faith. And we would ask questions of each other, like, why do you do this? And why do you do that? So it was very interesting. That's cool. Very cool. Well, I, I um, want to just ask a few more questions if you have some time. Uh, sure. One is, um, you know, you you write a lot of things on, you post a lot of things on, on Instagram that are very thoughtful. Uh, I love reading your posts. I love reading your perspective. <laughs> And, um, and some of the recent posts, you focused on some of the, like the modern cultures, transgender movement. Um, what advice would you give to Catholics who feel this kind of tension and pressure, maybe to stay silent or feel like they have to conform to uh, a modern culture's perspective? Yeah. You know, I, I realized that, um, you know, God gives us all gifts and, and one of my gifts is I, I do not have a problem speaking what needs to be said. Um, I don't care about the the flack that I'm going to get, you know, except for when they tell me I need to, you know, go kill myself. I mean, that, you know, that hurts a little bit, but um, I, I do not have a problem with that. And I, I recognize and realize that a lot of people do. Um, And a lot of people are in, in familial situations where, this is a reality that they're dealing with. And so they're trying to navigate, you know, how do I deal with, you know, my sister's daughter who thinks she's, you know, a boy and not lose my entire relationship with that side of the family. Um, So whereas I can just, you know, I have no problem just jumping in there and saying what I think needs to be said. I realize it takes a little bit more of a delicate touch Um, but I would, you know, encourage people to, um, think about how they would respond beforehand when, if they're in these kinds of situations, because oftentimes when we get into those situations and we haven't thought about how we would respond, if someone's asking us to call them by pronouns that don't match who they actually are we just stumble over ourselves and then we just go along because we don't want to cause a scene. Um, So thinking through how we would actually handle that with grace and charity (laughs) um, is something that I, I even do myself. If I were in this situation, what would I say and how would I go about it? Just thinking through that. 
but then also recognizing that we aren't supposed to please the world. Um, we're supposed to please God and we will be hated because of his name. And we just have to take that and we have to speak truth to people. The most unloving thing we can do is to watch people sink into sin because they could potentially lose their souls. And it, it's just not loving to encourage people in sin. And we don't have to do it, you know, like we're a jerk or anything, but we have to guide people to the truth. And people are desperate for the truth, honestly. They really are. Yeah. Uh, amen to that for sure. <laughs> um, now, you you specialized in the study of sexual violence. You, you have your master's degree in um, applied behavioral science. Why did you, what made you choose that topic? Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, about some of the work that you've been doing there. So um, because of a... Well, I wanted to go into the FBI because of a sexual assault that had happened to me by my boyfriend and two other guys on his football team. That was the devastation that caused me to walk away from God. Um, I was ill-equipped to handle it. And I didn't tell anybody because I just, I blamed myself, honestly, for being there that night. Um, Anyway, I wanted to, I thought what would make me feel better was to join the FBI and put bad guys behind bars. Um, and so my bachelor's was in criminology. And then when I got into my master's, it just naturally flowed that I moved into the study of sexual violence crimes. My whole entire thesis was about that. Um, I interned at a juvenile detention center. I saw a lot of things there, but I studied 17 juvenile sexual offenders. Okay. Um, and every single one of them had been perpetrated upon. And so I, I could see that there was this pattern, a cyclical pattern here going on. Um, all of them also had been introduced to pornography at extremely young ages, some as young as two. And so um, it just became an area where I was like, not enough people understand this crime. It's kind of one of those that we just, we, we know it's there. We don't want to talk about it because it's painful and it's so grotesque to our minds um, that it just became my niche, <laughs> I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So when we moved to Florida, I was, um, I was the rape crisis program director for the Salvation Army Domestic Violence Center. Um, I was an advocate for victims. I worked with police departments, hospitals. I trained hospitals. I trained judges. I worked on policies and procedures, and I went around and trained all kinds of people. I spoke at high schools, educating people on sexual violence, and that's just kind of my area of expertise. Wow. And, you know, I I imagine that some of the sex abuse cases in the Catholic Church had probably surface before your conversion were yeah. those a, a real deterrent for you i mean seeing being on the the victim side and the victim advocate side was that like oh i don't want to i don't want to be a part of this or like how like how did you reconcile that well one of the things is is that um first off i'm so thankful that the media actually did shine a light on it it needed to have a light shown on it um and we should be grateful for that especially as lay catholics um, cause you can't fix something that you don't know is, is, is there if it's hidden in the dark. Um, but I also recognize because of my work that this is a problem everywhere. It's in schools, it's in sports clubs, it's in, you know, just clubs, it's in universities. There is no place that is not touched by sexual violence. And so, um, I knew the Catholic church was not singular in this crime. And so what I had to do was look at what are they doing to rectify the situation? And I, I did look at um, the Catholic bishops, you know, conf- the U S Catholic bishops, whatever that is conference, mm-hmm. uh, out- them outlining what they were going to do to rectify it. They had an outside source come in to study so that it wasn't biased um, what was going on, who the perpetrators were, what was, who the victims were, all those things, how often this was occurring. And they were setting in place protocol to try to, to at least 
you know, curb the tide. <laughs> um, if they had been doing nothing, that would have been a huge problem for me, huge problem for me. But I did see them taking ownership, taking responsibility and trying to put in place, you know, things to, to keep this from happening anymore. I mean, I, I teach confirmation. I teach youth groups. I always have to take these trainings. Um, you know, for me, I'm kind of like, eh, you know, I could teach the trainings, <laughs> but you, you can't be involved with kids unless you do this. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would say uh, one of the most comprehensive trainings I had was as a Catholic school teacher on the, on the subject is that it was, uh, it was very serious and, and, and we listened to victims and their stories and, and it didn't like, it didn't try to like hide anything. It was really much mm-hmm. like um, people saying, I hate God because of this. And I don't trust the church because of this. And the church was taking ownership. And I, I was, I was kind of impressed by it in, in a sense, you know, like, okay, they have a plan, you know, like, and I think it will never be perfect. And, and, you know, it will still happen because humans are fallen. Um, but at least I, I saw, you know, steps in the right direction. And I know initially it, this was all swept under the rug, which is not uncommon. And that's something else that I know that most people do not realize um, you know, I had victims whose mothers would not deal with the sexual violence that was going on because they just, it's just harder. How do I want to say it? It's just too grotesque that we put up a wall, a defensive wall in order to not deal with the pain of it. And it's universal everywhere. Um, so the Catholic church was again, not singular in her response, doesn't excuse it. And a lot of people think I'm excusing it. I'm not, it's just, it's not unusual um, to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what advice, like if, if the if the council of bishops came to you and maybe they have and said, <laughs> Amy, um, you're an expert in this. What what suggestions do you have for us? Um, what would you, what, what kind of suggestions might you give to the, to the church to help protect vulnerable populations? I mean, I, I do like the trainings that they put forth. I mean, I've gone through them several times now, and like you, they're they're very good. They do not hide that this was a problem, and they've got victims on there that are talking about, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with the Catholic Church anymore. Um, this caused me to lose my faith. Um, so I think that's very good, and just being honest and transparent about it. Um, you know, there's nothing I could really say other than educating parents, educating parents, but I, I don't know if that's necessarily the, the church's role, but it could be something to offer parents, um, you know, uh, educational classes to understand this because the reality is, is that, okay, yes, you might keep them safe in the Catholic church, but it, it is a problem all over the place, all over the place. And in schools as well. Um, and something that I always bring up to people is, you know, they're like, well, I would never go to the Catholic church because of all the sex abusing priests. They think that they're safe there, um, by not going to the Catholic church, but people don't take their kids out of public schools or private schools. And we know that it occurs there as well. And so, you know, just education for parents really as basically what I, what I would say, um, and for kids, unfortunately, we have to educate children on this. It's sad that we have to and, and cause them to lose innocence, but it's it's necessary in the world that we live in. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate it, and um, I hope that's a yeah. I hope people take to heart what you're what you're saying here because I think it's it's so true. I I always say like every church, you know, it's not just one church that has a every church has a problem, and and a lot of them don't they, they don't do anything until the problem surfaces. And it's like, by the time that you realize there's a problem, that problem is probably a lot bigger than, than you realized. So what's interesting too, is that it does happen everywhere, but who gets, you know, highlighted the most is the Catholic church. And I think that's because even atheists know that we are meant to be called to a higher standard. Um, And so I'm fine with that. 
I am completely fine with that. Call us to a higher standard. Yes, we should be different. Um, but also not just us because then kids get hurt in other places. Um, and, and that's a real tragedy. Yeah. I want to end on a lighter note, if that's okay. <laughs> it's always heavy. <laughs> I always like to ask, um, who is your patron saint and why did you choose that as your patron saint? Well, it might not come as a surprise, but my patron saint is Maria Goretti. <laughs> um, you know, her her attacker was, you know, trying to force himself upon her. And, um, you know, she was able to fight him off in that regard, but he did end up stabbing her 14 times, um, kind of in his lust fury. And she offered him forgiveness, which was something I struggled with for years and years. And she was just a young child. And um, she is such a great reminder to me of the power of forgiveness. And through her forgiveness, she was able to bring her murderer into the faith. Mm -hmm. And he was at her canonization. And that's, that is the power of God um, right there. And it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of weird to have, you know, a young girl as your patron saint, especially now that I'm an adult, you know, I didn't pick her when I was a kid, like through confirmation classes or anything, but um, I just love the message of forgiveness that she teaches me. That's wonderful. Amy, thank you so much for taking time with me today uh, on Why Catholic to share your story and your perspective and your wisdom. Um, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was wonderful being able to hear Amy share her story. She reminded me of how God uses process to make us holy. Jesus didn't just transport his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He made them get into a boat and go through a storm in order to reveal who he was. Sometimes it's impossible to see what God is doing at the moment. Like Amy, I think all of us sometimes wonder if God is really there or if he's asleep in the hull of the ship. But God is faithful, and Amy's story is certainly a testimony of that. Speaking of Amy, please take a moment to follow her online. In the show notes, I've linked to her social media profiles on Facebook and Instagram, her blog, catholicpilgrim.net, as well as her podcast, Journeying with the Saints. I've also posted some video highlights from our interview on Instagram. The handle is whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Your pilgrim journey will be enriched by her thoughtful and faith-filled perspective. Thank you again for joining me, as well as Amy Thomas, the Catholic Pilgrim. My name is Justin Hibbard, and you've been listening to Why Catholic.